Hey, buddies, fellow Franco fans. It is I, your host, Jason Rudy, from Desperate Visions Productions. Uh, right now, we're in uh, beginning back up on post-production. Uh, took a little holiday break there, and a little uh, self-care break for a while. And uh, back up to doing that on uh, Lady Hyde and Emmanuel in Sin City. And uh, if you've been following our Facebook page or the Instagram page uh, at Franco Observer, uh, you will see some of the paintings I've been doing almost uh, on a daily or a couple-week basis of um, Lena and um, Brent Nichols and Jess Franco and Howard Vernon and Soldod. And, yeah, so I'm up to about 14 right now as I record this uh, podcast. So, But, uh, yeah, so check those out, all 16 by 20 canvas paintings of Franco subjects, the uh, Franco um, series of paintings. So see how long we could do those. Probably not as many as these podcasts, but, uh, yeah, it's something I'm doing right now to keep my mind busy. So it's a good thing. Uh, speaking of good things, this is episode 73 Film number eight, uh, Rafifi in la Cuedot, also known as uh, Rafifi in the City. This is um, out of Spain, the uh, country of production, 1963. Uh, alternative titles, the French theatrical title, um, let's see, Hunting the Mafia, Chase et le Mafia. Uh, the French theatrical provinces, Vesuvius, Vele de Paco. Uh, Italian theatrical is a spy over the city, uh, Una Spin Sulla Cita. A uh, production company on this is Albatross Film, out of Madrid. Theatrical dis- distributors is uh, CEPICSA, out of Madrid. Sepicia, it's all capital letters. Uh, and out of Paris, Compagnie Parisine de Film. Uh, timeline, uh, shooting date is May to June of 1963. So yeah, I shot this summertime of 63. Uh, classified for Spanish release was January 24th of 64, 1964. Uh, French premiere is April 22nd of 1964. Played Madrid in December 7th, 1964. Uh, Barcelona, August 9th of 65. Seville, March 1st of 66. And finally, Italy, Rome for just one day on July 31st of 1967. Uh, theatrical running time, the Spanish version is 90 minutes. And the France French version is 117 minutes. Once again, we get uh, all information from the production of this from Murderous Passions, The Delirious Cinema of Jesus Franco, Volume 1 by Stephen Thrower. Uh, Okay, so cast on this. uh, Ferdinando Fernan Gomez plays Detective Sergeant Miguel Mora. Jean Cervez plays Maurice Le Prince. Laura Granados plays Pilar Mora. Antonio Preto plays Commissioner Vargas, Moriah Superior. Robert Manuela plays Pueg. Maria Vincent plays Nina Laverne. Tomias de Molina. This isn't it? Okay. Um, Diana Loy plays Juanita. Augustus Gonzalez plays Antonio Rivera. Manuel Gas plays Juan Fernando Paco Manelis. And let's see who else we got in there. Angel Mendez, all right, is uh, Mario Alonso, the princess's secretary. Um, and we have, who else? Uh, quite a few names, actually. Quite a big list. It's funny, on his earlier films, his uh, cast is quite a bit larger. Uh, uncredited, Rafael Hernandez, Policeman Checkpoint. Jess Franco plays the client at uh, Cafe Boulevard. And... Uh, Jump now to credits. Director Jess Franco, based on the novel Souvenir de Paco by Charles Expriant, adapted before the screen by Jess Franco, Gonzalez Sebastian de Eric, and Juan Cabos. Director of photography, Godot Pacho, editor, Angel Serrano, 
um, music, Daniel White, Daniel J. White. Uh, and this is the second film now for Jess Franco, I believe. Uh, producer Jose Lopez Brea, assistant producer Jess Franco, production manager Jose Villanueva. Um, and let's see, looks pretty good there. Assistant editor, set dresser, choreography. Okay, music recorded and released by Phillips. All right, so um, skip the synopsis for the review portion um, on the other side. So, um, okay, production notes. Rafifi in Le Quedad began shooting in Malaga and Marabella in May 1963. It was subtitled Vous Souvenir Vos de Paco, drawing attention to the French pulp novel by Charles Exbriant, from which it was derived. Press clippings from the period suggest that the film was being rushed ahead for release in July 1963. However, it failed to meet the deadline, perhaps due to the fact that while the film had been planned as a Spanish-French co-production, Franco himself was forced to step in as an associate producer when the French money failed to materialize. Despite this, French audiences saw the film first, under the title Chase et la Mafia. On April 22, 1964, its Madrid premiere followed on December 7th of 1964. All right, the review by um, uh, the review by Stephen Thrower. The elegant return to film noir territory of La Muerte Silva in Blues is even more handsomely shot, and is probably Franco's strongest crime thriller. Godofreco Pacheco's black-and-white photography is stunning, and Franco responds to the skill of his hugely talented associate with a stream of beautiful and assured deep compositions. It's a must for anyone seeking evidence of the director's ability to create coherent and nuanced drama in a mainstream setting, and should raise a few appreciative eyebrows among those who generally regard his work as a technical shambles. Rafifi and Qued is Franco's first genuinely first genuine literary adaptation of the novels of David Kuhn accepted of course because that's him uh, the story is based on Ava I'm sorry Vaux Souveux Vence de Paco a pulp novel by French writer Charles Ebrant Ebrant uh, sorry uh, author of over a hundred detectives stories, many of which appeared in the very popular Le Masque series. Vaux Souvenir Vaux de Paco was the winner of France's Grand Prix the Grand Prix de Roman de Aventures in 1958. But despite the credibility of the source, Franco's adaptation diverges considerably from the original. In the book, the lead character joins the police with a single aim to avenge his father, who was murdered by crime boss Ignacio Villar. After years of fruitless searching, he manages to infiltrate Villar's gang using a young informer, Paco Vols. All seems well until Miguel receives a box delivered to his home inside his Paco's head. From this point on, Villar finds that his associates are being bumped off. After each murder, he receives the same message. Do you remember Paco? Franco makes numerous changes to the book, the most profound of which is the removal of the lead character's motive for hunting down the villain. Detective Sergeant Mora in Rafifi in Le Quedad is nothing like Exeberon's vengeful inspector Lujui. He's simply a cop doing his job. The character of Paco, called Juan in the film, is likewise altered. Instead of being Mora's innocent young protege risking his life on behalf of the police, He's portrayed as a philanderer who has slept with just about all the women in the film, many of them married, and in the place of the cops gnawing guilt for having caused the lad's death, the film substitutes the forlorn, impotent rage of the cuckold. <laughs> That's funny. There's really very little of the emotional and psychological essence of the book left. Franco, with... Gonzalo Sebastian de Eri and Juan Comas, his co-writers on the sadistic Bear von Klaus, has simply taken a rough outline of the plot and rewritten the characters. It scarcely seems worth having bought the rights to, in the first place, 
with just a little more tweaking. The story would have bear no relationship to the source at all. Stylistically, Rafifi in La Cuida is a thing of beauty. Narratively, however, it could do with more vitality. Like Maureta, Silva, and Blues, it suffers from a sluggish pacing, and despite being based on a pulp thriller, it lacks the crude energy associated with the form. The moody film noirs of the 40s and 50s are evidently appealed by Franco, but he's a little too casual a structure to bring off the dramatic peaks one would expect from this simultaneously downbeat and enthralling genre. Slow pacing in itself need not be a problem. It would soon... I'm sorry. Uh... uh not a problem, and it would soon become a significant aspect of Franco's mature directorial style, dovetailing perfectly with his taste for hypnotic erotica and horrific dream ambiance. There's a difference, though, between slow pacing and no pacing. Uh, Rafifi needs a foot on the accelerator as we approach the climax. Instead, we cruise at the same speed throughout, with no sense of urgency, save for a couple of brief interjections like the stalking of psychotic gang member Ribera or Polaris' fetal car crash. Slow-talky scenes are included well into the file reel, of which time action violence and dramatic confrontation should predominate. Um, he says here, The villain is another problem, and unlike uh, Death Whistles of the Blues, it's not easy to blame the star. Uh, Jean Servas was a well-established French character actor with a string of prestigious assignments under his belt, and his face is quite interesting enough to hold over the, our attention. The problem lies not with him, but with the paucity of the action he's given. Although we understand that Maurice the Prince is a dangerous man, it's mostly because we're told about it. Much of the violence and evil for which he's responsible is carried out indirectly, as befits a man of power and influence. Um, for instance, he orders his thugs to give more uh, savage beating. Nevertheless, he's supposed to be a gangland drug lord as well as a successful politician. We need to see the colder, harder style of his personality, the monster behind the facade. The scene in which he shoots dead his current squeeze Nina shows his ruthlessness, but even then he acts because Nina is betraying him, stealing incriminating papers from his safe. The priest... The prince is reactive rather than proactive, and despite the murder of Ribera and Torres, we get no sense of counterattack. The prince is essentially acted upon, threatened on the telephone, betrayed by his mole, aggressively investigated by the police, and, re and represented as a dangerous force solely by his thugs. Had he been a more baroque, extravagantly wicked character, an aggressor to be feared, the whole film would have been improved, slow pacing and all. Uh, let's see. Let's skip over that part. Okay, um, quite a list of complaints. Yeah, I'm going to skip all those complaints. I always don't dig those as much. However, Franco's strengths are also much more in evidence. By now, we can see the prevailing metabolism of his cinema slow, almost slumberous rhythms, and a mood sufficed with melancholy. Rafifi includes several gorgeous sequences that eclipse reservations with their bewitching visual charms. Rather, as the women in Franco's later films distract men from asking awkward questions with their mesmeristic sensuality. Nina sings her nightclub numbers based around the infernally catchy melody that dominates the film, dazzlingly illuminated against a velvet black void. There follows a surrealistic performance involving dancers in medieval costumes in which a man in a suit of armor gets down with a girl in a bikini. Meanwhile, Moriah receives a sustained and brutal beating in a shadowy stairwell at the hands of Le Prince's most disturbed psychic. A dancer called Antonio Ribera, played by Agustin Gonzalez as a psychotic, sadistic homosexual. By intercutting the songs with the prolonged beatings of the hero... Franco communicates a nonchalant sense of irony. In the modern world, a brutal and primitive scenario plays out, while on stage, medieval figures cavort with playful civility. Uh, civility. He achieves a similar degree of irony by contrasting the hero's home, a cold, shadowy, loveless place with the light and eccentricity of the villain's abode, with its white walls, cane furniture, wild animal trophies, and live parakeets.
a minor scene like the rendezvous between Nina and Detective Sergeant Mariah or Mora, uh, which takes place at a public aquarium, however, it becomes a display of illustrious lighting, gorgeous close-ups, and stunningly deep focus compositions. Dappled water reflections bounce off the wall as Nina um, spills her guts about Le Prince's role in Juan's murder, with turtles swimming serially by in the background. The murder of Ribera's another outstanding sequence, consisting of multiple shots of the victim peering over his shoulder as he walks along a seafront causeway before being attacked by a statuesque figure seen only in silhouette. Uh, Ribera is the film's most energetically depraved character, a, sadistically, a sadistic dandy whose tendency to lose his temper and clench his fists to his forehead whilst whining like a dog suggests serious psychological problems along the lines of Cody Jarrett in White Heat. We see him confidently cruising a man at the Stardust Club and exuding a papally twisted arousal as he beats Detective Mora, all of which make him far more intriguing and compelling villain than the Prince, who could have done with a bit of eccentricity or perversity. And then there's a car crash, which deploys Franco's grisliest shot so far as Pilar's bleeding corpse stares sightlessly into the night into an eerie tingle of glass and metal. It's an image that wouldn't be out of place in a Dario Argento film. Uh, let's see. Perhaps the most striking thing about Rafifi was the fact that it, it was made at all. Corrupt politician Maurice Le Prince with his omnipresent Big Brother is watching you posters on every street and TV screen seems such a pointless attack on the cult of personality around General Franco that it's a wonder that the film wasn't cut off at the knees before production. Such had already been the fate of one Franco project, Los Colongos. Rafifi could have easily have ended up just another unrealized ambition. However, the ambiguity of the story's geographical setting was enough to guide it safely past the state censored boards or eyes. Uh, future films would bring Franco into conflict with the Spanish censor, due to their eroticism, political sensitivities, it would thus give way to moral issues, one of the strongest movies one of the strongest movies away from the twin beacons of sex and violence, Rafifi in Likudad, suggests a different direction Franco could have taken political critique couched in the seductive language of film noir. A final note on the setting, a newspaper report about Ribera's murder names the location as Minichuacan, an alternative name for Mequacan, or Michoacan, in southwestern Mexico. Under the headline, Dancer Murdered in Michoacan, the article reads, On the bridge leading to the salt mines of Santa Clara, of Santa Clara was found the corpse of the famous dancer Antonio Ribera, there is indeed a small settlement called Santa Clara in Mexico near the Michoacan Guantanamo border, and yet Le Prince is running for the Senate and refers to being accepted as an American citizen. His campaign posters are in Spanish, but there's a large black community and a jazz milieu in the region. Is this really set in Mexico, New Mexico, somewhere else in Spanish seeking South America? Interestingly, Michoacan is transversed by the Sierra Madre and is mentioned in B. Traven's The Tigress and the Treasure of the Sierra Madre. It's safe to assume that Frank was very familiar with Traven's work, um, so perhaps Michoacan had sunk in Franco's mind while after reading his stories. Uh, Frank on screen, he's seen in profile directly behind the camera during the Cafe Boulevard sequence cast and crew alright um, leading man Fernando uh, let's see Fernando Fernand Gomez here looking remarkably like American actor Carl Malden was by this time a well established actor and director of comedies in 60, 1964 he directed El Cuatro Vallejo in which Franco made a rare acting appearance outside his own work Gomez later turned up in such Spanish films as Spirit of the Beehive 1973 and all About My Mother in 1999, and was married for sev seven years to the much younger actress Emma Cohen, star of Jess Franco's extraordinary 1973 psychological drama, oh, The Other Side of the Mirror. Hey, awesome, cool, he was married to, uh, yeah, Emma Cohen from Other Side of the Mirror, awesome. 
that's a cool connection. Uh, the big name in the cast is Jean Servas, Belgian star of the superlative crime classic Rafifi, directed in France by the blacklist American director Jean Dessin in 1955. His presence explains the entirety spurious title of Franco's production, which attempts to associate with the French hit, much as various 1970s productions would borrow the name Emmanuel for commercial gain. Okay, cool. That's awesome. That's good to know. See, I've yet to watch this, so I'm learning all this as I read myself. So yeah, so they basically they had the villain of Rafifi and uh Okay, yeah, Jean Servan. Okay, cool. So yeah, so they have the the heel of the and they're bringing it in and just capping on the title. Getting the rub from the uh, Rafifi title. Um, okay. Uh, Davison Hepburn, the handsome black actor playing Chico Torres, one of the Prince's heavies, is now the heavily decorated Davidson Hepburn, Ph.D. of Chevalier of the French Legion of Honor and President of the General Conference of UNESCO between 2009 and 2011. Fluent in Spanish and French, he attained a Ph.D. in Comparative Language and Literature at the University of Madrid, Spain in 1966, which puts him on the ground at the right place and time and with the right language skill. The same man is also renowned for his voice talents as he won a Golden Globe Award for narration at the International Film Festival in 1983, and is apparently still sought after for TV and radio commercials, narration, and documentaries. Yeah, all right. Uh, let's see. Music. Uh, buoyed along by Daniel White's marvelous Latino jazz score, Rafifi in Le Quadad, also features contributions from French jazz singer Marie Vincent, who plays the prince's girlfriend, Nina. Um, she dubbed Bridget Bardot for songs in Light Keeper House's Daughter and was a winner of the Edith Pilaf Award in 1950. All right, location. The Aquarium Rendezvous between Nina and Mora was shot at the Aquarium Madrid. Other scenes were shot at the Museum Nacional de Quincy Naturales. Seaside locations shooting took place in Malaga and Marabella Studio, uh, East Studios Belestros in Madrid. Connection. Uh, the word Rafifi is considered untranslatable, the closest anyone can agree upon being some variant of rough and tumble or rumble in the sense of a fight between men. Oh, okay, cool. I thought Rafifi was the character's name. See, I've never seen the original film Rafifi, so so it's like rumble in the Quedad. Uh, Rafifi in the Quedad bears no relation to at all to Jules Sans 1955 heist movie Rafifi, except for the casting of Jean Servais. Uh, further Rafifi films were dotted throughout the 1950s and 60s, sometimes but not always based on the writing of Auguste Le Breton, whose book was the source for Dancing's movies. Among the bona fide adaptations were De Rafifi chez les Holmes, I'm oh, sorry, De Rafifi chez les Femmes. 1959, starring Robert Hossein, Rafifi in Tokyo, 1963, which staged a bank holdup and diamond robbery in, you guessed it, Tokyo, and Du Rafifi et le Panama, a.k.a. Rafifi in Paris, uh, 1966, which starred Jean Gabin, and that one I've heard of. Uh, Rafifi in Le Quadad's voiceover, emanates, or emanates, emanates from a woman who does not survive the film, Shades of Sunset Boulevard, possibly 1950. Uh, other versions, despite the French finance falling through, the film was released twice in France, once in Paris as Chasse et la Mafia, and again in the province as Vous Savez, Vous de Paco. The film also played in Italy as Un Spia Colacata, Something that has not been remarked upon before is that Juan's love letters and the threatening notes from the killer which are being held up to the camera for several scenes are written in English. That would suggest that at some point an English-language version of Rafifi in La Quedad was struck, although sadly it has yet unearthed. Uh, let's see. Uh, press coverage. It says it was warmly received uh, by the uh, Spanish press. Um... Or, but uh, ABC Madrid was less enamored. Okay, that looks good. All right, so uh, that's going to wrap up the um, information portion of uh, Rafifi in La Cuida. 
Um, so yeah, uh, I think I may just do a solo review on this. Uh, definitely I'm going to do one on the next episode, episode 74, for um, El Elandro, the Jaguar, because supposedly that's like a really, not the best Jess Franco film, so I'm not going to let it make anybody sit there and watch that with me so i'll probably knock that one out too so uh getting those ahead for this month of february coming up and when these drop so uh yeah be on the lookout for that so all right we'll hang out through the bumper music and uh we'll get the uh review on rafifi and uh tell you what i think about it all right what is noches Hey, buddies, fellow Franco fans, it is I, your host, Jason Rudy, and I just got done watching uh, Rafifi in La Coidad, uh, Rafifi in the City, Do You Remember Paco, also known as Hunting the Mafia, so, yeah, it was a, uh, I really enjoyed it, um, I, um, was kind of like, uh, pressed against it to kind of get this done in time before I go on vacation for a little bit so i uh was like oh shoot i gotta watch this tonight so put it in and uh yeah start off really amazing and was amazing all the way through i really enjoyed it um so yeah and this is going to be a solo review if you've already kind of noticed by my uh quick intro and jumping into it but uh yeah so what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna go over like i usually do go over the synopsis and then give the uh, reviewer, which is myself this time, uh, my opinion of it, and then go over the list and go over some other little things, um, and talk about the Blu-ray and all that good stuff. So, all right, uh, synopsis. Um, let's see. Manhawakan, Mexico. Juan Solano, a handsome young bartender at the Stardust Club, has disappeared. Detective Sergeant Miguel Mora has been had recently been employing him as a means to gain information about a man called Maurice Le Prince, a powerful and influential politician with unsavory criminal connections. A few days later, Juan's corpse is thrown through the front windows of Mora's house. Mora wants to close the net on Le Prince, but the politician looks set to win a major election, and Mora's superior, Commissioner Vargas, is afraid to pursue the investigation. Mora confronts Le Prince at the Stardust, but the meeting ends with him beaten up by the Prince's bodyguards and thrown into the sea. Rescued by two friends of Juan's, Juanita and Manalo, Mora recovers and, despite the advice of Pilar, his wife, decides to continue his investigation. The prince's associates begin to turn up dead, first the sadistic Antonio Ribera, then ladies' man Chico Torres, then old stalwart, stalwart Morales. Mora discovers that the prince is involved in the drug trade throughout South America. The prince, meanwhile, discovers that Juan had been having an affair with his girlfriend, Nina. Mora finally amassed the mysterious assassin. Well, here we go. Spoiler alert. It's Pilar, another of Juan's conquests. When Mora discovers her infidelity, he shoves... Or, I'm sorry, he shows her Juan's many love letters from other women before make, walking out on her. Distraught, she follows, but crashes her car and dies. Oh, I'll talk about that later. Uh, Mora, with nothing left to lose, goes to the prince and confronts him at gunpoint. The prince shoots Mora in the back. Commissioner Vargas arrives and shoots the prince down. Well, I went through the whole ending. I was going to kind of skate over that, but yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's, that's the whole film in a nutshell. Um, yeah, very um, full circle. A lot of good stuff in this film. Um, I'm going to go over some of the uh, things I like without going over the list and then hit the list. Um, okay, so I always... Uh, one thing Stephen Thrower... Um, well, first I'm going to do this. Uh, 
the Blu-ray is really good. I highly recommend the Blu-ray of it. It's a double feature uh, put out by Severin um, late last year. And it's a double feature of Rafifi in the City and Death Whistles the Blues, two great black and white film noir detective type films, um, films uh, six and films eight in the Franco canon. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really good. And uh, there's a one hour um, uh, deal on it on both films by Stephen Thrower. And it's really good. It's a lot of the stuff from uh, the from the book Murderous Passions, um, of course. Uh, Volume One by Stephen Thrower. Uh, a lot of the information is repeated from the book in those uh, one-hour special. But yeah, it's it's really good and it's uh, got, got a lot of good stuff on it. But he talks about the different forces in that. But back to him, uh, he always says fear or desire. So in this one, I would say it's probably well. There's both actually because there's the fear of him killing a guy and then somebody hunting him down and then killing him. So he has that fear of somebody coming back from his past, his guilt, you know, and of course the desire, uh, of the other side to kill him. But yeah, I think it's more fear, but there's a flip side of that is desire. So, um, on this had a really nice opening sequence. Like I had said earlier from the beginning, really cool jazz number with, um, like, a cool like dance steps and then you see feet dancing and that very uh it set a good pace of it's you could tell it had a lot of music in the in it, it from the opening sequence you could tell it had like a lot of music was going to be in the film which there is there's like a, probably about four or five different musical sequences in here uh in different clubs the stardust club there's like three sequences and then there's uh, uh one of them people like dancing when uh or, and it's like a, a little um island club where they uh, Manalo and uh, and uh, Juanita or whatever watch this girl dance and stuff. So there's a lot of the dance sequences there, and then you see the different club and stuff. So yeah, there's quite a few different uh, music sequences in this film. Um, speaking of the club, you have the Stardust Club, which is a already had been featured uh, once before, maybe twice before. I know in uh, um, I think it was Death Whistles the Blues, and then I think. Uh, one of the earlier films, the vampires or the one before had the, um, I think talked about the Stardust club. So yeah, it's like the second or third appearance for that. And of course the Stardust club and the Flamingo club and all that go on many times in the Jess Franco universe. Um, this film has a lot of nice clock sequences throughout it. Uh, there's, uh, you see them always look at the clock. There's, uh, when he's waiting for his deformant and, uh, you see the different clocks. He goes in the bar, looks at the clock and then later on in the film, there's uh, like a funny clock at the club, and then one of like a knife and a fork that make up a clock. And then in the very end, when the main bad guy is killed, he's killed in like a circle that looks like a time sequence, and he falls in the middle of it, kind of like a western, you know. And so it has that clock motif running through the whole film, which is really cool. Um, let's see, you have uh, e, uh, Franco's in the film, you see him at the very front of a at the bar uh, in that sequence when he's waiting for his performance Paco and uh, uh, Miguel is going to he has a espresso and you see Franco in the very front of the camera sitting there uh, having a cigarette uh, hanging off his lip um, and yeah and Detective Mora is, is a name used in later films um, and of course they say uh, Buenos Dias in this a few times which I like it's one of my favorite things to say uh, there's a really a lot of great shots in this film. Um, there's a cool sequence when uh, Miguel and his wife are uh, watching uh, TV, and it's like a the Zorro hour. And of course, Franco worked on some Zorro films uh, before and after this. So, or actually after this, I, th I don't know about before, but I know definitely after this, he was like uncredited and did some second unit work in that. So, uh, yeah, so that's funny that that got on there. Um, there's um, I thought that cool, uh, the big dance number intercut with uh, the cop, the main um, det detective Miguel uh, Mora getting uh, beat up by the three thugs trying to kill him, including the one uh, thug that you see is uh, supposed to be like a homosexual, where he's at the bar earlier and and uh, or later and uh, 
having a drink and trying to cruise, pick up the guy and, and talks about how he loves being free and all this stuff. So, yeah. So you see him kind of getting off as he's beating up the guy intercut with the dance number. So it's almost like he's raping him while the other two guys are holding him as he's beating the shit out of him. So it was really interesting too, for that time, uh, pretty daring in 63 to a lot of subversive ideas in this too, which is really cool. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, let's see what else we have without going over the list. Um, I like that there was the black gloved killer with the switchblade, kind of a precursor to giallo films. Um, going on at that time so that was really cool you see you don't know who the killer is and it's the black gloves with the switchblade stabbing the guy and killing him and running off and getting in the car and driving and that was really cool uh kind of ahead of his time definitely um yeah and also too you see so after this he did chimes at midnight with orson wells and you kind of see with this film a lot of mirror shots like lady from shanghai and then some citizen kane type stuff with the politician and that and stuff so you see it's almost like uh there's a couple of Orson Welles montages in this. Also, too, um, Lady from Shanghai, uh, the aquarium sequence with the turtles in the background and that. So, yeah, there's a couple Orson Welles stuff in this film, which is probably another reason why I liked it. And also, too, watching this, you get that little bit of a, um, a touch of evil. Not as much as Death Whistles of the Blues, but there is that kind of a touch of evil vibe in it, um, which is cool. And then Stephen Thrower talks about um, the Big Heat and uh, Glass Key, which I hadn't seen those two films, but uh, I guess there's some kind of a story elements woven into this film from that as well. Uh, okay, and let's see what else am I going to go over. Um, yeah, so yeah, and also too, when you find out that it's his wife doing the killing and and one by one, and that is, to me it was kind of a precursor to She Killed in Ecstasy, which he did later on, which is one of my favorite Franco films. That really got me spinning into the Franco universe that uh, virtually among the living dead. So, uh, yeah, with the wife and hidden killing and that doing it. And, uh, which is interesting because then she dies too later on the film, uh, in the car crash, which was like Soldat Miranda. And that was like a major milestone in Jess Franco's life that haunted him for many years. So it's interesting that, uh, you have the girl that dies, um, in this film, after killing people one by one, like Soldat did later on. So it's almost a weird uh, foreshadowing of that. I kind of caught watching that. I don't know if anybody's mentioned that before, but that's something that I kind of saw. Um, let's see. Um, mirrors hot and dressing. Oh, yeah, so there's like really cool mirror shots in this quite a bit, um, but that's on the list deal. Um, and it's cool that the husband is really the real cop in this because he does the leg work the detective work and and finds all the love letters and and does does the work and figures out his wife and all that stuff so it's like even though she does the real killing and the the real justice the vigilante justice he's the one even though he's not assigned to the case he's doing it on his own time and his own initiative and uh then you find out later on that he's cuckolded by juan as well he was having sex with his wife and uh so all this that he did is just kind of in vain, you know, because he's, he finds out all this about his own wife and stuff. So yeah, it's really heartbreaking, but very, very cool. And, uh, it's good that he keeps his morals and, and, you know, stays an honest man and stuff and kind of knows how the end's going to come and, uh, gives the high sign to show up in an hour and all that stuff. So yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of good stuff in this. And, uh, like I said, he killed the clock at the end, kind of an old West type shot the whistling at the end and uh, clock sequences link all the way through and uh, it's cool too that the young couple that you see because you kind of wonder throughout the film oh, who is it killing the people and, you, and I thought it was the young couple and then you realize it's almost they're like a surrogate for Miguel and his wife Pilar whereas you think it's the guy and the girl doing it but it's the other guy and the girl like I said Miguel doing the detective work and then his wife killing the people so that's interesting that he threw them in as kind of a red herring or a type of uh you know, um, uh, uh, like a, like a decoy. There you go. That's where I was looking for. Um, but yeah, and, uh, yeah, it's definitely late, definitely a downbeat, uh, detective novel turned into a movie type deal. Like, um, like the Al Perra films later on. And I liked it was downbeat like that, like Les Bernalis, which is a film of his. I, I really like a lot. Um, I mentioned a vice also too. It's called. So, um, so yeah, I I really like this film a lot. Um, like I said, it's definitely better than I thought it was going to be, um, which is usually the case with some of these. But uh, 
like I said, the next film, The Jaguar, I'm not expecting much from because I hear it's not very good. So that's how that is. But you got to watch the good with the bad. So and you got to be a completist and uh, go over everything. So all right. Speaking of going over everything, uh, let's go over the Franco list. The L I S T. Like I seriously thought. Franco, no, okay. Uh, yeah, so this Franco list, this is something that I observe, that I put together over watching films, seeing commonalities, and decided to group them together, and each episode I go through and see how many of these items go on the list. Uh, they mostly started from later on in the uh, filmography when I jumped in, but when going back to the beginning, you don't see as many of these, but you still see some ones that start popping up so you say okay cool this is the first appearance of this first appearance of that blah 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 so here we go all right number one uh body of water yeah in the opening sequence you see like right in the beginning you see uh i have written down number one number four and number nine so of course number one body of water number four palm trees and number nine jazz music so you have those three elements right off the bat uh, let's see, um, number, what did I say, one, four, okay, so number three, boats. You have some boats later on in the film, not as much in this film, you see a boat kind of sitting on the shore, and then some boats later on toward the end, like, uh, off fishing, so it's not a, not a big deal in this film, boats aren't too much, they're mostly, uh, background, if, if any, very sparse on the boats. Uh, number four, we said yes, palm trees, number five, jungle sound effects, no, that's mostly later on with the prison films and all the jungle stuff, but uh, yeah, not not much here on this. Uh, number six, chained up person. Actually, I didn't even pay attention to that one. Uh, no, there's people getting killed and stuff, but nobody really chained up. Yeah, there's a pretty crazy like um, when they bust up the club and they figure out the drugs are hidden in the chandelier and they shoot the chandelier down. There's like a big shootout, like guys with machine guns and that, and it almost turned into like a Sam Peckinpah film there for like five minutes. It's kind of crazy, but uh, yeah, nobody chained up. Uh, number seven, dance scenes on stage stripping. Well, this being, um, you know, 1963, even though we had nudity thwart off and that, there's no nudity in this film. So, um, but yeah, there is, uh, like I said, there's the lady singing um, there at the Stardust Club and then the lady dancing later at the club or at the uh, kind of the jungle club um, off uh, off the beach. And uh, I mean, the uh, beach club and um so and then she's like dancing but no stripping. So yeah, you have those two dance scenes on stage, dancing instead of stripping. Uh, number eight, club scenes dancing. Yes, there's a scene later on uh, when you see a lot of couples dancing, and then uh, also when the cops beat up, there's a weird kind of a dance sequence where you see these different um, uh, Victorian couples and a guy in a night and a ballerina, all these different couples dancing. It's very bizarre. So yeah, that's definitely on that. Uh, number nine, yeah, jazz music, we said yes, definitely. Number 10 and 11, excessive zooms and out-of-focus shots. Negative on both. This film has a lot of amazing great shots, great crane shots. He really is very mainstream and professional and high-quality gloss. Um, this is definitely a film to show people that if they have any qualms about Franco being an inadequate filmmaker or a hack or whatever the stupid words they want to use, Show them this fucking film and they'll shut their mouths because there's this is like a great film to watch. So many great sequences, great editing, great timing, great linking scenes, uh, great camera shots, great setups, um, just a lot of great stuff in this film. So yeah, definitely high points on those. Uh, number twelve, mirror shots. Yes, like I spoke about earlier, quite a few mirror shots in this. Like uh, Lady from Shanghai, there's uh, one of these sitting by the mirror, three or four mirrors kind of together at her. Uh, a couple of a lady undressing on the side mirror shot, and then uh, but no nudity. Um, and then you have uh, one or two other mirror shots. So yeah, about four or five in this. Um, oh yeah, and there actually there was one that I wanted to mention uh, that was really cool. Uh, one on the prince during his uh, political speech, his campaign. There's like, this is a cane shot type deal. And there's big mirrors on the left there that kind of show him. Where it's funny because they show the duplicity of him, where he's really a thug and a criminal guy, but then his other side is a politician. He says he's like Christopher Columbus, and he came to this land, and he's there to help the people. It's a total, total facade, so it's funny. Uh, okay, uh, number 13, mind control theme. Well, maybe just what I said there with the politician. 
telling people lies and controlling. But yeah, that's no science fiction one, more of just the um, deceit, you know. Um, number 14, magic tongue scenes. Well, no Lena, no magic tongue. Although um, um, their informant, you know, um, what was his name? Uh, Juan or Paco. He's uh, definitely had the magic tongue because he's like screwing every girl on the city. He had basically the mob boss's wife. He had Spectre Miguel's wife. He had like three or four other women there at the club. Oh, and uh, yeah, and the girl there. And so it's, it's really funny. So yeah, he definitely was the magic tongue in this sequence, but you'll see it. All right, number 15, Red Light. Not sure, black and white movie, couldn't tell. 16, Sheepskin. I paused for a second because during one of the, I think her name's Nina, I guess, um, the dancer there at the uh, Stardust, there's a small sheepskin rug in front of her during that one sequence. So, yeah, just one small, very little one. And, of course, no masturbation. So, uh, 17, Mad Scientist, negative. 18, Fish Tank Shots. Yes, there is. Uh, like I said, there's the Aquarium, and then also at the uh, Guy's House. So, two, two of them, I believe, in this film. 19, Talking Parrots. No talking parrots, but you do hear uh, the parrot scenes and parakeets, and you hear the parrots make noises. So, and half point for that. 20, End Credits. Yes or no? Yes, it says Finn, F-I-N. So, that would be yes on that. Uh, handwritten notes, yes or no? Yes, technically. Um, when one of the guys sneaks away on a train to try to hide for Le Prince, uh, you see on the box, uh, Le Prince's name kind of stenciled on boxes. So that's kind of handwritten, I guess. So I would count that as yes. Uh, 22, Spiral Staircase. Yes, there's a small spiral staircase. Uh, let's see, number 22. Uh, in the background, um, when... Um, uh, oh yeah, when when the um, one of the c- killers is confronted by uh, his uh, friend, one of the other guys that works for the prince, and he's trying to control his rage in that, you see the spiral staircase in the background on that shot. Uh, number 13, inept cops. Yes, because they're corrupt, and, you know, the, the his commissioner, or... Um, is corrupt and he has to kind of go around the system and the vigilante justice is the one that actually kills the people that are the ones that did the crime so that's inept of the cops and he but, but in the end he kills the guy that was the the main bad guy so in the end he he gets his dignity back and and takes charge and does the right thing so in the end he's uh you know keeps justice but a lot of ineptity throughout the film number 24 belly chains no that'd be negative and uh no really kink list on this film that i caught so just like i said more mainstream film so he didn't go to too much deviancy although there's a few like you know um interesting ideas i talked about but you know some subversive tea but no nothing like that so uh all right so yeah no this is definitely a cool film uh, a lot of good actors um the acting is great very dignified um kind of a detective film kind of remind me a little bit of stuff scorsese would do later on maybe some of the um battle without honors films out of japan later that were cool i liked um and of course some 70s kind of you know cop films that are like uh, hard-boiled type films or pulp stuff, and yeah, it was it was definitely cool. I, I would definitely recommend this film, and uh, if you get a chance to check it out, do so. It's a uh, it's a nice hour forty-five minutes of your time, and uh, yeah, may give you appreciation for Franco if you didn't have it before. All right, so um, I just want to say thank you all for uh, keep listening to the shows and keep following on and all that stuff. As you know, uh, we're now on uh, episode 73, and this uh, was film number 8. And uh, I'm going to be knocking these ahead every week and putting these in the can and uh, posting them and uh, getting them on the schedule like we always do every Wednesday morning. So you know every Wednesday morning at 1 a.m. if you subscribe, you'll have the episode waiting for you when you wake up. And uh, you'll say, Buenos Dias. Good morning to the episodes on every Wednesday morning. Uh, I know I have them set up uh, through the uh, system to download or to be up available at 1 a.m. So if you download and subscribe uh, from your favorite listening platform, you will have those. And uh, 
been seeing uh, a steady number, and we kind of have our usual quota of uh, downloads in that time, the hour, and then an hour later, which is always cool to see. Uh, so please tell a friend and uh, share the episodes, post them on your show, post them on your pages, tell people about them. Um, please don't keep this as a secret. Let everybody know, uh, pass the good word, and let everybody know about the Frank Observer podcast. And um, also, too, you can get a hold of us at uh, francoobserver at yahoo.com. That's our email address. Uh, and uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. I have pages on there. And I've been doing um, daily or every other day or so, uh, doing a lot of painting recently in between uh, the editing uh, break because uh, we're doing sound editing now. God, it's so boring sitting there listening to take after take after take of people talking and giving, t- ugh, I don't know. Anyway, I'm just, it's, it bore me out, so I had to kind of take a break and uh, go on and do some um, painting. So if you go to the, our Facebook and Instagram page, you'll see that uh, I've been doing a lot of Lena paintings and Jess Franco and other Franco Universe paintings, so subscribe to those and you can check it out. Uh, of course, our mission statement here at the Franco Observer Podcast is always doing these in uh, praise and in memory of Jess Franco and Lena Romay and Howard Vernon and Paul Mueller and everybody else, uh, bringing the name and films of Jess Franco to new eyes and ears. And I know one thing I have done in this journey so far is doing that part. I've brought on some new ears and eyes and new fans and new listeners to the Jess Franco um, universe. And I've actually got new friends out of it as well. Uh, a lot of cool listeners. Um, Ragnar always says that uh, these these are always great because, um, you know, uh, it adds a lot to... Uh, the movies and, and just all the information and that. So it's really cool. People have been uh, reaching out and tell me that they dig the podcast and uh, like the shows and like all that. So that's, that's really good. At least you know that uh, you have people out there that are digging it. So keep digging it. I'll keep building it. So let's keep on keeping on. So, all right. Well, uh, yeah, I think that'll probably wrap up my uh, thing on there tonight. Did all my ideas and uh, did all the little things you should do to uh, keep the show going. Oh, yeah, also, too, we got a download. Uh, I mean, not download. You got a donation button on there. Uh, if you ever feel like throwing a buck or throwing some change or whatever, uh, I got a hat that's always open that could always use some money because I'm a starving artist and, uh, you know, it's always good to have some money, so... All right, money, honey. Talk to you later. Buenas noches.